0: Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Martin Studio today, I'm Darren Hefty.
1: And I'm Brian Hefty. So apparently we're having a little problem with our music today, so hopefully we get some music back up. But otherwise, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to talk a little about improving seed emergence on your farm, whether you raise corn, soybeans, wheat, or any crop. Emergence is incredibly important if you can get quick, early, even emergence it's worth a lot for your crop and for your bottom line, so we'll talk about that throughout the show today. As always, we are happy to take your phone call. If you'd like to call into the show, the number is 844 44 AGPHD. That's 844-442-4743, or you can email us, radio at agphd.com. All right, we're going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag in just a second here. Um, I, I, I will say this when we talk about improving seed emergence – There are things that you can do to speed up that emergence, but a lot of this still comes back to the environmental factors. And it's interesting. I'm just working on putting stuff together for next week's Ag PhD Wheat Workshop. We'd love to have you join us for that. By the way, it's on Tuesday, and it's right here at the Morton Center at the site of the Ag PhD field day. So right on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota, just go to agphd.com to learn more about that. But anyway, I had surveyed about 50 really good agronomists a week ago, and I just said, all right, what are your top things? What what do you think we should talk about at this wheat workshop? And I mean, most everything, it's not like there was anything that was revolutionary that they told me. But one of the most interesting things is how many of them said plant early, plant early. You can never plant early too early. Plant early. <laughs> I'm like, okay, got the message. But I, we found that on our farm. We found that in other crops too, like corn or soybeans or anything. Everybody's talking about planting earlier to get higher yields. And that's all great to say. And we want you to plant early as long as that soil is fit. But I just want you to think about the stresses that that crop is going to go under when you have or an early planting into cold soil that most likely is also a wet soil. So you think about that, it's like, okay, we're more likely to have disease problems, more likely to have insect issues, more likely to have soil crusting. And the longer we know, the longer it takes to get seed out of the ground, the, your odds of having that great stand go down every single day at least just a little bit. So you want to give that seed the best possible chance to do well. But again, where I'm going with this is it really does come back to some degree to what is the weather. So if you luck out and seed and you have unusually warm weather right then and dry, that's awesome. And you can get that seed popped out of the ground earlier. But what do you do if you don't get that? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay. So let's get to the YAG PhD mailbag, Janelle. I'm guessing we still have no music. Still no music. Okay. Anyway, Darren, what's your first question that you got over there?
0: All right, Brian. Uh, we were talking. Actually, we we're talking about improving seed emergence, and-, and maybe this is one of those things. I remember one year, I you- you said it, uh, all the way into the fall we had wet corn, and you know I, I think about this, Brian. Here's where I think this question ties in. If we get good emergence, our topic of the day we usually get drier corn. If we struggle with emergence and if we get in late, then oftentimes we have wet corn. But anyway, I so said, I remember the crop of 1992. We ended up leaving 60 acres out in the field, minus the headlands, because the corn was still 30%, and the ground was too wet to get out there on. And I do remember, I was fortunate enough, I shelled it off in May of 1993. This is from Dan, by the way. I shelled it off in May of 93 onto my 40-20 Wearing a t-shirt. So corn actually did stand and did actually dry down over the winter. Yeah, that, that can happen, Dan, no doubt about that. We um, okay. So don't like we, leaving crap out there.
1: Yeah, but- let, let, let's go back to this a little bit. Everybody wants to talk about this whole global warming thing, but let's talk about global cooling just a little bit. Here's one of the ways that the entire Earth gets cooled down, large volcanic eruptions. And what happened on June 15th, 1991, is one of the largest volcano volcanic eruptions ever to happen. It was Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines, and it lowered the earth's temperature for over two years. So that's the reason why in 1992 and in 1993, we had such wet corn in the fall when you planted what you considered to be a normal maturity. So this is one of the things where we as farmers have to be smart about, all right, what's going on? And what's happening in the world that could affect my farm. So if something like that happens again, we have to know, hey, the your temperature is probably going to be a lot cooler. So we got to plant an earlier season corn. Now, I, I will say, too, like for our state of South Dakota and as I go north into North Dakota, we were dramatically negatively impacted by that cooler temperature because we're already cool. Our normal average high at the hottest day of the year, the hottest day of the year where we farm in southeast South Dakota is 86 degrees. That's it. That's not hot. That's not hot at all. So when you're already in a cool area and now you're going to make it cooler, well, here's basically what ended up happening. We had above normal rainfall and we couldn't get rid of the rain and lakes that had never been there before or hadn't been there in decades all of a sudden, were enormous, and it was. I just remember I had a friend uh, from college. So I went to college in the late 1980s into early 1990, and I had a friend from college. and went to see him up in southern North Dakota, and and this was uh, I don't know 93 or something like that, 94. And I go, where in the world did all these lakes come from? And he goes, Yep, just in the last couple of years, we got all kinds of lakes around us now. So. Anyway, it's just interesting what can happen from a global perspective when you start talking about the, the overall temperature and how that can impact your farm. So anyway, thanks a lot for those comments. Really appreciate that. Yeah, it varies a lot from year to year.
0: Yeah, and just that that uh, smoke that we saw this summer in a lot of areas. Boy, did that cool things off in July. We had uh, a year where it was super, super hot in June. And we got to July and we were thinking, oh, it's going to be more heat, more heat. And it didn't turn out that way. Well, we'll talk more about improving seed emergence and take your calls and questions as our show continues.
1: All right. So normally at this point, we'd have a commercial break, but apparently we got some computer issues. And so you're just going to get Darren and me, I think, perhaps for the entire hour. So Darren, why don't you just continue? We have, <laughs> I think we have enough questions over there to fill about eight hours worth of time. But, uh, but anyway, go ahead.
0: All right, so I'll give you some soil samples then, Brian, since we we have the time. Uh, This one is from Austin, and he said, I was curious to see what your recommendations would be for these two fields of mine. So I'll give you some details here. He said, they're sampled on five-acre grids on the farm termed Miller. We pulled off a 218-bushel corn average and 233-bushel average on the one that's called Oak Tree. We put variable lime out there to try to get the pH around 6.8 was our target. Uh, curious what you think about that. Let's take that as the first question. What do you think about variable rating lime to get to a 6.8 pH? Is that too for, high? Is that- For
1: what crop? Corn yeah. and soybeans, right? Yep. Yes, that's too high. Don't shoot for a 6.8. Please don't ever shoot for a 6.8 if you're just raising corn and soybeans. Shoot for a 6.3 tops. That's it. And then just see where it turns out. Because the biggest mistake that we've ever made on our farm – well, I shouldn't say ever. One of the biggest mistakes we've ever made on our farm is we, we put too much lime on. You do not want to get too much lime on. So for corn and soybeans, they'll do just fine at a 6.3 pH – and so that's all I would want to shoot for. And quite frankly, when I look at the soil pHs here, the lowest that I see is a 5.6. So it's not like it was horrible to begin with. Now, I don't see what the cation exchange capacity was there. So I don't know how heavy a soil or light a soil that is without doing a little more looking at this. But it looks like just my quick observation is it's possibly a medium textured soil, which means you don't need much lime at all. Anyway, go ahead. What else?
0: All right. Next question. Uh, Austin says uh, we we will side. Well, we will put on thirty-eight gallon. So I'm sorry, thirty gallons of twenty-eight percent with a strip till bar. Just wondering if we put thirty gallons of twenty-eight and a pint of boron on in a strip, will that be too hot on the roots?
1: Well, how deep is it going to be, and when's it, when are you going to put it on?
0: Yep. And what's the CEC? So that would be like spring and put that on uh, ahead of planting.
1: Okay. So first of all, I'm not a big fan of putting on 30 gallons with a strip-till bar. Why don't you just broadcast it? Just broadcast it. That's how I would do it. Now, if you want to do some, um, eh, that's fine. But a lot of times when guys are going out in the spring with a strip-till bar, they're only going four or five inches deep. That's you're you're you've got too much load there for thirty gallons. So I, I mean, there's too much load for being only four or five inches deep. Now, if you were eight or ten inches deep, you're probably okay. But even so, it's a lot in one spot. So do I love that program? No, One pint of boron, that's probably gonna be okay. Um, I don't think that's going to be pushing it too much. But here's the thing. When we talk nitrogen, sulfur, and boron, those can move fairly well through the soil. So usually we just suggest broadcasting them. That way we don't have to worry so much about burning off roots, crop safety, anything like that. And we know that it's going to get down there eventually. So I would just say if you want to band do a low rate, maybe 10 gallons or 15 gallons or something like that. If you want to do some two by two, do a little bit that way too. So just don't get yourself real carried away. 30 gallons to me sounds like a lot. It might be okay a lot of years, but sooner or later it's probably going to catch up to you.
0: All right. So looking at our soil samples here on these two fields, we plan on putting the nitrogen and boron down in the spring. In the fall, we put on dap, potash, and some sulfur. Uh, 75 pounds of dap. Two hundred pounds of potash. Okay, um, we were going to side dress a blend of thirty-two percent and ammonium thiosulfate with some boron later in the season, and and we also put a micro pack out there. Uh, just wondering what else you would recommend, or if there's things you'd recommend we change in that program.
1: Okay, well, your potash is way too low. You're at a 1.7 percent base saturation K on average. Oh, I finally found the cation exchange capacity 14. So yeah, it is a medium textured soil. I can usually get an idea based on how much calcium and magnesium I see in the soil test uh, as to the soil type. But anyway, a medium textured soil. You're only at 1.7 percent base saturation K. And how much potash did you say he was going to put on? 200 pounds. Yeah, that's not enough. So that, that's not even a build program, barely. So it just depends on what your yield goal is exactly. But well, 218 I,
0: I do, to 233.
1: Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. we We've talked about this one for seven minutes so far, so I forgot from a long time ago. Anyway, the point here is, no, you don't have enough K. You need to be on a dramatic build program or at least a build program because you are short on K for corn. You're short on K for beans. So you got to get that bumped a little bit more. Beyond that... I mean, we always want to see copper levels over 2 parts per million, and we want to see that zinc ratio together with phosphorus, the phosphorus to zinc being about 10 to 1. So right now, your phosphorus levels are are they're okay, they're not great, around 40, 50 parts per million, which means we need to be 4 to 5 parts per million on zinc, and you're only at about 3. So I'd probably get a little bit more zinc on, I'd definitely get more phosphorus on, and that's that i
0: i think that's about all i got all right thanks for the questions we really appreciate that austin uh, I got this one in from Connor, and this Wait, is... Whoa, 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 Darren. I, I think we're going to start talking
1: about oh. uh, improving seed emergence and hey, jump we to we the phone lines. lines. working. Great. Yeah, so I, at, le- at least we're getting something going uh, here on the show today. But anyway, back to our topic of improving seed emergence. So this is a really big deal regardless of the crop that we're talking about, and that is our main topic today. And again, if you do want to call in, it does look like our phone lines are working now, so you can call in at 844-44-AG-PHD. Or again, you can just send us an email, radio at agphd.com.
0: All right, let's start off with our friend Tony Wendler down in the state of Iowa. And this is a question he gets a lot improving seed emergence. Tony, thanks for joining us today.
2: Hey, good afternoon, gentlemen. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on.
0: All right so what have what have been your observances here I know this is a topic you've worked on a lot on your own farm but also with lots of farmers across the country improving seed emergence what are some of the things you saw in last spring's really powdery dry conditions in in some parts of the country in other areas it's been what
2: uh, very good question the uh, you know last year was a, an interesting year from my point of view and one of the the major components was Getting seed to moisture. The um, one of the things, and uh, Brian had brought this up last week, that uh, looking for the depth, planting seeds perhaps deeper than you might normally do. Uh, one of the components that uh, I like and, and is important to me when you're looking at the the planter. There's lots of different things that you're dealing with on that row unit. You got the openers, the meters, uh, adding fertilizer. My focus is that right at the end and probably the least costly and the last thing to impact your seed is that closing wheel. One of the things I like about our design, the germinator, is that with its spikes injecting soil into the uh, furrow, the uh, inner shoulder is firming the soil back down onto the seed. And with that making a vein of firm soil, it helps to wick more moisture up from below as opposed to other wheels that we did actually study last year, some of the other um, similar wheels, spiked wheels, that would push loose soil together without creating that firm vein of uh, soil. So getting the seeds totally enclosed in soil, getting a firm zone so we can help wick that moisture up became really important. The, uh, one of the things kind of brushed over, you talked about moisture last year, variety of conditions. The, uh, having the spikes to collapse that sidewall in and get rid of that uh, sidewall smear. So when the plants do come up, they're able to uh, root through it. And in either description, as everybody knows, is getting the most even emergence we can because any delays, you're growing weeds.
0: Let Those me ask you, let me ask you about... Oh, Tony, let me ask you about those spikes before you before move on, and I totally agree with you. If you've got plants that germinate uh, a couple weeks later, they, they often end up just being weeds out in the field, uh, especially if you have good growing conditions, so the the early emergers get way ahead of them. Uh, when, you, when you talk about those spikes, here's something I've seen, Tony, and we've tried a lot of different um, – competitors on the market and we see some that have really long spikes and we've also seen a lot of farmers including us that have end up ended up flipping up seed on top of the ground with these long spikes so how are the germinator closing wheel spikes a little bit different and and how do you what do you what does it tell you when you're flipping up seed out of that trench uh what does it say that you're doing wrong well
2: especially when you're dealing with long spikes uh, and I've seen it with uh, competitive products also, they've got their spikes down there very close to the uh, the bottom of the furrow or perhaps even below the furrow. So when they're going through, they're actually doing tillage, and they're disrupting the base of that furrow. And with the soil action kicking it out, the other thing that a, another farmer talked to me uh, is, and I, like a lot of guys, uh, centered my... Uh, my closing wheels on the furrow once, never checked it for three years. And then until he told me this. Uh, if you drag a, a planter sideways through a uh, end row when you're uh, through a gate as you're coming in, it's not uncommon to knock some of those uh, closing wheel arms in the back off center. Perhaps you've got a long spike right down there in the furrow. What is different about ours is our measuring width is on the shoulder and the it actually draws the V down to the bottom of the furrow our spikes sit outside further so our spikes go into the ground and with the uh, with the metal component they're gonna go in they're gonna make soil displace to the void which is the furrow so the soil injects to the center and then that shoulder comes in like a traditional rubber wheel and presses the soil right back down that loose soil back to the seed zone uh, with the where our structure of the shoulder Our spikes are not quite as long. We really looked at it that, uh, looking at our shoulders sinks in the ground, probably in a good setting, about a quarter of an inch. The uh, spikes are going to stick down about an inch and a half, inch and three quarters. I can't remember the exact measurement, but not quite two inches. So we're not getting below the traditional furrow and creating tillage the um which I think is an important uh, component oh, it's huge uh, kind of co- covered a handful of things yeah
0: yeah well, you did but but the the common sense of it is if if you're not getting down to the bottom of the furrow with your spikes, you're not going to have those problems, and and that's a big deal. We, we did see that quite a bit, so it's something to be watching for. Tony also mentioned just making sure everything's lined up and checking it over and over again to, to make sure you're not creating a problem out there on your own because we see that too often where farmers, including us, haven't gotten out as much as we should have, and all of a sudden you find that problem and you hope that you found it Shortly after it happened, but every once in a while you realize, oh no, I've planted the whole field or more, and I I could have done a better job.
2: Yeah, and
0: it's surprised to me when that
2: gentleman told me about that. He checks every field. I went back and looked at my planter and found three of twenty-four rows out of whack. It's like, huh? And I, you set it once, you do a good job, and I just never looked at it again.
0: And and he talked about making sure everything's consistent, so you have even emergence. It's not just even emergence within the row, but it's even emergence row to row, and that's why you do need to take a little extra time. It's uh, personally, Tony. It's why I'm looking forward to autonomous vehicles. Where all right, if I've got. A tractor that can basically drive itself, that gives me more time to be in the field digging and, and watching for all those things as we go. Because a lot of times, man, you've just you you've got all this pressure of it's going to rain tomorrow or I've got to get a lot of acres in. And it's it's hard to spend a lot of time if you're the guy that's operating it. But uh, for so many farmers that are a one-man show out in, on the farm, uh, it's it's tough to have time to get it all done. Uh, You need to get out out of the seat and one of the things that I really take my hat off
2: to your process out there in Baltic is you've taken the best guy out of the planter seat and you put him digging behind every row and some of the research I've seen that you guys have found, like you're saying, row to row is impressive and a big impact and it makes money so whoever the best guy is on every farm needs to get back there and dig and it's not just one row it's every row
0: yeah yeah great point uh talking with tony wendler here with farm shop mfg and you can check out the germinator closing wheel and and a lot of the other great stuff that tony's working on uh, at his website at farmshopmfg.com. tony thank you so much really appreciate having you on and happy new year thank you very much happy new year to you gentlemen Let's head down to Nebraska. i got our friend Ty Fickenshire on right now with Luma. Uh, Ty, we had a question come in already about strip till today and when we think about improving seed emergence, I know this ends up being one of those things where guys say, okay, I built my strips in the fall. Am I done or do I need to do anything else to make sure I've got great emergence next spring?
3: Yeah, that's definitely a a consideration to take into account. Um, We need to go to plant in the spring and you know, fortunately, typically in the fall, you know, you let winter kind of come in and settle in and do its thing on the strip, um, you know, especially pulling a shank, you know, want to reduce or eliminate that slabbing, uh, slicing action that could, you know, cause a much deeper seed placement than what, what we'd want. Um, we do have one of our, our neighbors, he actually strips, uh, puts strips down in the, in the fall with P and K and then comes back in the spring and puts in nitrogen and sulfur uh, in the spring application you know, really mellow that strip out and creates the most ideal kind of garden-type garden, garden type bed for a seed to, to emerge.
0: Yeah, I've really liked the strip-till overall. Not not that we've done it perfectly every time, but I was talking to uh, another friend that, that does strip-till, and he said, you know, we, we had something different this year versus last year. Last year, he said, we built this great berm. This year, our berm was not as big. Does that necessarily mean... He could have a valley in the spring, or have you seen that? That some years it just fluffs up a little bit more.
3: Yeah, we get those really dry conditions. We'll see it. We'll see it kind of fluff and then settle quite a bit, you know, through the winter months. Um, you know, depending on on rainfall in the spring, you know, if we see it where it starts cooling quite a bit, we get a lot of water, you know, saturating that soil right around the root zone. We could see some issues. Um typically, I know in our part of the world, you know, we, we might get a wet spring, but we're not usually wet enough where that's going to be an issue. But, you know, getting those nice, getting a nice berm built um, is pretty important, but not, you know, if you don't have that, it's not going to be the end of the world to get good emergence in the spring either.
0: So, looking at, at the yields that came out of Nebraska this year, man, it was impressive. There was it, it was a heck of a year for the state, especially at a year where you get good crop prices, too. Uh, what did you learn yeah. this year? Do you have any big lessons?
3: Um, well, mother nature still holds all the cards. (laughs) Um, you know, we, in this area, we had some guys who were breaking, breaking, uh, yield records on their farms by, you know, 30, 40 bushel an acre and very, uh, very fortunate, very, very good growing season for the crop. But, um, you know, still comes down to what can we do in the spring? You know, making sure we get a good seed bed, get good emergence. If, if we hadn't gotten good emergence in the spring, Uh, uniform stands, you know, treated that that crop right from the get-go, we wouldn't have gotten such good yields, but guys have done a very good job of, you know, paying attention to what that emergence looks like, and that's really been a message that a lot of the retailers and and consultants and and everybody alike have have really driven home is, you know, making sure we're watching what the planter's doing and, and how the seed's coming out of the ground, so um, I think just like every year, starting off the year right is the most critical part of it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, you get one chance to do it right and and do it in the right time window and and get mm-hmm. every seed coming. And if you don't, I know Tony Wendler had already made that comment, you end up with weeds out there that you just can't control. Um, right. t- we're talking with Ty Fickenshire here with Luma down in the state of Nebraska. Ty, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on.
3: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: All right. When I think about improving seed emergence, one of the biggest questions that I get is, can I shallow up my planting so my seed will, so my plant will come out of the ground faster? Look, there's a limit to it. And so let's just take corn, for example. We never, ever want that corn planted more shallow or less shallow, however you want to look at that, closer to the surface of the soil, let's put it that way, than an inch and a half you have to be at least an inch and a half deep. Otherwise, you run the risk of having some of your nodal roots come out above ground. That's not good at all for yield. So we definitely never want you being more shallow or closer to the surface of the soil with that seed than an inch and a half with corn. We typically want to be an inch deep with soybeans. Those, Those two crops are a lot different from each other because soybeans, not nearly as critical as corn in terms of planting depth, but nevertheless, that, that's something you got to think about. Now, here's one other thing that I want to throw out there because a lot of times we think about going more shallow, but every once in a while we have a drought year like this last spring where basically we'd we been under severe drought conditions for about nine months on our farm or eight months, and a lot of other people had too. So the, the the ground is fairly dry, and a lot of people ask this question, can I plant deeper than normal? And I said, absolutely. So like with corn on our farm, we were planting a lot of corn at three inches deep, and we were planting a lot of soybeans at two inches deep. Now, normally, I don't want to see either of those crops planted that deep. But the thing you got to think about is, number one, we say, all right, you have a lot more crusting risk if you're going to plant deeper, because it's going to take longer to get that seed out of the ground normally. But when there's less moisture in the soil, then you're going to come right through that a lot earlier, and there's very little risk for crusting. So I'm not that worried about it in that kind of case. The other thing is we say, all right, it's going to take more energy to pop out of the ground when you're planting a little deeper. Again, normally I would agree with that, but when there's more air in your soil, ...compared to normal and a lot less moisture, then it is going to come out of the ground at least a little bit faster. The big thing is we wanted to plant into moisture... And so when there's no rain in the forecast at all, and you're you not hitting moisture until near that three inch depth, like with corn, when we were planting corn, we just said, boy, we just we don't have a lot of risk for crusting here. And we're not too worried about the extra energy it's going to take to pop that seed out of the ground. I think we're going to be okay. And we were, and I was super glad we did that because then we had more even emergence. So there's a difference here between getting faster emergence sometimes versus even emergence. So I'm just saying in some cases when you have real drought conditions and you've got to get down to moisture because you see boy no no rain in the forecast it's been really dry we're in tough shape here I'm okay planting just a little bit deeper to try to hit that moisture and you're going to be in good shape now, I'd still encourage you to use a good seed treatment and everything else because, quite frankly, we do not know what's going to happen with diseases or insects or anything else. And when we talk about these seed treatments, people automatically think, oh, it's, uh, it's just going to protect the seed and it's going to help you pop out of the ground. Well, that's part of it. But you can get long-lasting benefits out of these seed treatments that can give you month two months even season long activity then the last thing i would say is we got to be really careful about salt especially in a dry year because salt is more of a killer when it's dry so that's why we're always talking about low salt fertilizer as opposed to high salt fertilizer especially when we're dealing in furrow
0: all right what a great segue because we got dr jerry willem with agri liquid on right now jerry thanks for joining us
1: Oh, I'm happy to
4: be here, guys. How are you?
0: Oh, we're doing great, and Happy New Year to you as well. Yeah, thanks. All right, Brandon's is just mentioning uh, for seed emergence and getting seed to uh, to come up evenly, you really got to watch out for a high salt fertilizer and, and just overdoing things in the furrow in general. You've certainly done as much research as anybody I know about this particular topic. What can you give for advice to to growers if they're looking at improving seed emergence and you know what? Hey, they want to put fertilizer on as well. What's the safest way to do that?
4: Okay, yeah, I've, I've done that a time or two. Uh, but anyway, what what Brian I guess said at the beginning is something to remember. Is you know germination is going to determine on the be determined by the environment. You know, you get there has to be a temperature and there has to be moisture and that sort of thing to to cause that germination to happen. But then it's after germination, it's it's what we can do to affect emergence. And a lot of people think that you know putting a starter fertilizer on might affect uh, the germination. Well, that's not true. We're we're there with uh, the the nutrients and things like that. And then, but plus what you said, the seed treatment, all of that is to affect uh, what happens after uh, germination to get it out of the ground, uh, you know, fast and even. And of course, as you said, what where I see the the best effect on even or uniform germination is the presence of some starter fertilizer or some, something in furrow there uh, that's going to make it uh, respond more uniformly because you know if you don't if you don't have it have a, something like that you're just going to be re- relying on what's in the furrow there and who knows what that exactly is uh, to get it out of the ground but I've seen just really good uniform emergence by applying some in-furrow fertilizer and of course I'm kind of leaning towards our pro-germinator as one because it is low salt it's balanced it's slow release and so it's not going to be a big uh, onslaught of nutrients and that sort of thing all at once it's going to kind of gently feed the feed the uh the roots over time and, and kind of help it get out of the ground uniformly and if i can can add uh, placement is also a factor uh, a lot depends on the on what happens after uh, planting if it's cold and wet and it sits there for a while I don't like to have like the single stream or the stream of fertilizer right under the seed because it's going to sit there and maybe affect negatively affect uh, germination and emergence. However, in, in ideal conditions, we've seen the best results as far as emergence with that single stream. But you know you run the risk you run the risk of uh, some damage uh, that way. The other thing is the split stream where you're not actually contacting the seed. But you're putting it on to either side. Then when it closes, actually the fertilizer band is a little above the seed, but it's not directly in contact with it. But it is kind of bathing around it, and through capillary action, the seed, the fertilizer is going to spread around. And so that's probably the safest and easiest way to get uniform. Well, it merge. is
0: getting popular too to try and get it just off the seed, like you're talking about, Jerry, If you can hang on through this break, we'd like to have a few more questions with you right after this. Listening to Ag PhD.
5: Introducing Kyber Soybean Herbicide from Corteva Agriscience, the newest premium Group 15 pre-emergent solution. Kyber delivers three effective modes of action for long-lasting residual activity, meaning your fields won't just be clean—they'll be Kyber clean. And what is Kyber clean? Well, it's a little like nice fields. See the difference at kyberherbicide.com/soy. That's k-y-b-e-r herbicide.com/soy.
6: Farming is probably the most natural thing for a person to do. It taught me how to take pride in my work, how to put something ahead of myself. Whether it was getting up early to feed the livestock or working late to bring in the harvest. Farming taught me to give it my best, no matter the job. My name is Tanner. I'm a farmer. I work for Case IH. Case
5: IH. Built by farmers. Conditioning low-moisture beans to 13% can add semi-loads to your bottom line. And with our 13 for 13 year-end special, make 13% beans possible with 13% off an end-zone bin system. Use promo code 13for13 at farmshopmfg.com.
1: Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here, along with my brother Darren. We are live in the Morton studio. Today we're talking a little about improving seed emergence. Right before the break, we're visiting with Dr. Jerry Willem. He is with AgriLiquid. Just talking about liquid fertilizer and salt. So, uh, Jerry, I I, I was just curious. We were talking for a few minutes there. You were visiting a little bit with Darren. But, I I mean, when you hear about this topic and improving seed emergence – what where, where do you usually go with that? When a farmer asks you, hey, I want to improve my seed emergence, now talk to me about you, the use of starter fertilizer and what do I have to be concerned about or what should I be doing? Well,
4: everybody thinks that you know, planting in cold soils and that sort of thing, that it's, that it's nitrogen. Maybe a fertilizer doesn't have enough nitrogen. They've asked, can I put our high energy in or 28 in furrow? And I usually steer away from that, particularly if you have some adverse conditions. But what we've done tissue tests and, and that sort of thing, and what the plant's really wanting at the start is is the phosphorus. Uh, that's what leads to, to good root development early and uh, it's phosphorus, and, and so that's kind of what the plant needs early. And, if you, and, I, and this is why it's kind of confused, or not confused, me, just kind of surprised me a little bit, but you know, you look at a plant uptake from planting all the way through harvest, just those first few weeks after planting the phosphorus demand is actually pretty low but there is still is a demand there and if it's not getting it from the soil because the soil is not biologically active until it warms up so that's where the advantage of putting some phosphorus uh, plant available phosphorus and then putting it right in, in the furrow so as soon as that root comes out it's going to start taking it up so that's kind of the key there it's phosphorus and I also do like to add some micronutrients because you, 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 there's something that you, you just don't want the plant to ever be lacking for anything, and and I say this often when I'm on the radio here, but I say it's easier to prevent a deficiency than to correct one, and so keeping that plant out of deficiency, but early on, phosphorus and some micronutrients is kind of where I'd like to go. Yeah, I
1: agree with you that the soil's not real active at that point. Heat is usually a limiting factor when you're planting, especially when you're planting early, but the other big factor is just the size of the root mass. So A lot of people, when I talk to them, say, oh, I look at my soil tests and then I look at, you know, what the crop's going to need and it looks like I have enough. And I go, well, first of all, I want you to think about, is your crop actually able to explore 100% of the soil? No. And the second thing is, how much soil is it able to explore when that root is really tiny in those first three weeks or so? So I agree with you, the phosphorus is a big deal. But the question I get most often is, why is my corn so yellow when it comes out? of the ground a lot of people say oh it'll grow out of it and oh the sun will help you when you get more sunlight we've had a lot of clouds but how about you mentioned micronutrients how about iron and some of these micronutrients and the impact on the yellowing of the crop early on
4: yeah i guess that could be a factor but i guess i i usually go with the sunlight i hate to say it but uh i mean i've seen here in michigan it's cloudy a lot and yep you know, it's just when when it comes up and there's no clouds, there's just no photosynthesis. And you've done everything that you can, except you're not able to provide sunlight. And then when it does, when the you know leaves start forming in the plant and the sun does come out, then it does green up. Uh, iron, yeah, it could be it could be a factor. That's why I like, you know, the micronutrients, a, a product like Micro 500 with five micronutrients in it kind of covers the bases.
1: All right, again, we've been talking to Dr. Jerry Wilm with AgriLiquid. Jerry, thanks a lot for the time today. Really appreciate it. As always, your information is awesome.
4: Yeah, well, thanks for that, and I appreciate the show. You bet. Thanks.
1: Bye, All right, next on we've got Chad Henderson calling from down in Alabama. Chad is with Extreme Ag. Uh, Chad, how are you doing today?
6: Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How y'all guys doing?
1: Excellent. All right, so in Alabama... You're a little bit warmer than we are in South Dakota on average, (laughs) but I still... Hey,
6: we got two inches of snow last night. (laughs)
1: Uh, Yeah, we're lucky. (laughs) We haven't gotten much snow here in a little while. I'm happy for that, but I'm thinking more about planting time. And when we talk about improving (laughs) seed emergence, is this a big deal at all to you in Alabama or what struggles do you go through?
6: Well, um, I've been been able to sit and listen to the show and all the folks on so far have had great really great ideas about what what they see and, and all of them are, are great you know um the planter is the first thing to me is looking at the planter make sure it's in great shape seed disc openers you know like i think it was tony that was saying you know all that and the closing wheels i mean that is you know great things not to be you know if you run a cultor in the front or row cleaner as far as not creating an air pocket you know we talk about having an air pocket on the seat you know, it's, it's a lot of things that go into that as well. But, man, I guess the biggest thing is is doing to the best of our ability is knowing the forecast ahead of us, you know, whether or not how we're going to plant the seed, you know, how, how many people is trying to stop, you know, how many hours in front of a rain, you know, event yeah. or, or things like that, you know, and I know it's really hard to do because we're all about trying to get finished. You know, everybody's trying to get done before they get started, <laughs> you know. So, um, you know, it's just so many variables that come into play, but. But really knowing and being able to change the planter on the fly to knowing what's coming ahead of you, you know, to the best of our ability is is a huge thing for us.
3: You
1: know, I'm glad you brought that up because it's one of the things I totally forgotten to talk about today. Imbibitional chilling. A lot of people have heard this story here in the north that, boy, if you get a cold rain on it, it's really bad for your seed. I have absolutely not found that to be true in the real world. In the lab, you can do all kinds of things. But in the real world... I don't know I just I'm not going to stop the planter because for one thing then I'm now putting faith in these weather forecasters that they're right and what I find is (laughs) I can guess and I'm just as right as they are so it's 50 50 (laughs) most of the time I mean unless you get really close if you're within 24 hours then it's usually a little bit better than that but still I, I, I just haven't found that that's been a real big deal if you're planting into cold soils and you have a really good seed treatment you do something for insecticide and diseases and all that i don't think it's a real big deal what do you think
6: i i can't, I can't find it either but a lot of times we're don't we're always going to have we we've proven over the years that the seed treatment just like what you're talking about is huge i mean it's, it's huge to have a good seed treatment you know and, and to have the seed where it's as strong as possible coming out of the ground you know whether it's got a 250 or a 500 or whatever package you want to put on it or whatever company you use um is huge. Uh, the next thing is is we'll go if the weather is not favorable, and you know we move around a lot. We have smaller fields. We'll go to our less, I guess, our 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 least fields. You know, far as least yield fields. Sure. You know, we're not going to go out here and plant our high contest type ground or the ground is going to be irrigated ground. You know, we'll do we'll a steer away from those to conditions look favorable. You know, five, six, seven, eight days. You know, and I'm I'm not as worried about you know. As day three or four as I am day one or two, yeah. You know, so, so we'll go to our less productive soils. I guess is what you say just to keep the planet running.
1: So a minute ago, you're talking a lot about openers, and uh, the biggest thing that I think mm-hmm. about is just previous crop residue management. If it's uneven with that previous oh. crop, then you have lots of oh. problems, and I'm assuming you deal with that quite a bit too, right?
6: Well, well we, you know, that's what got me going with a strip till thing. You know, um, uh, we obviously with strip tilling just to You know, to be placing nutrients better. But we, we plant, we lot, we do a lot of double cropping, you know, where we'll plant wheat and beans and then corn. So we're trying to get three years in two, you know, three crops in two years. So when we go to try to plant behind that wheat bean stubble, no tilling, you know, controlling that residue is huge. I mean, you can, you can have the corn coming up outside the combine tracks and, you know, right behind that combine. If you don't control that residue, I mean, it's very hard to get a stand. And then you'll see more yellowing, and I'm with them. They're talking about the colder soils and the phosphorus is where I think the yellowing comes from. You know, because it's funny that the thicker the residue is, the more yellowing you'll get.
1: Right, which basically means, yeah, it's great to have a nice opener and all that kind of stuff and you're planting right and everything else, but it's the management that you did a week or two weeks or three weeks earlier that makes a lot of difference. It's yep. the spreading of the residue and then whatever you do to manage it after that, like strip till, for example. Uh, all right, Chad, we got a run yep. today, but uh, thanks a lot oh. for calling in. Really oh. appreciate it and hope things are going well for you oh, down yeah. there.
6: Really enjoy the show. Good job, guys.
1: Thanks a lot, and Happy New Year to you. All right, so once again today, we're talking a little about improving seed emergence. Got a couple last things for you on that right after this break. And then we'll uh, wrap things up getting to your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag. Stay tuned.
0: One of the most important things you can do for your farm is improving drainage. Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. On Monday, January 31st, we're hosting a free Ag PhD tiling clinic in the Morton Center on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. Whether you've been tiling for years or you're looking to plan your first project, you won't want to miss this event. We have a whole host of information for you, including a legal session with the country's top drainage lawyers, as well as presentations on tile design, lift stations, NRCS guidelines, and ways to approach neighbors and landlords about tiling issues. For more details and to register, go to agphd.com. While you're there, check out the other Ag PhD events we have coming up in January and February, including agronomy workshops in corn, soybeans, and wheat, two days dedicated to soils, plus a whole day devoted to natural and biological products. There's a lot of great information here, and we can't wait to share it with you. To learn more about these events and register, go to agphd.com. When it comes to weed control,
5: our cards have always been on the table. Because we believe you deserve near-zero volatility, flexible tank mixing, and a wide application window. That's the Enlist Weave Control System. Just better. With no ifs, ands, or buts. Discover better weed control. Enlist.com. Enlist.com. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter. Because now, you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit mybayerplus.com and see program terms and conditions
1: for full details. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Just wrapping up the show today, talking about improving seed emergence, and we'll get to your questions Whenever we talk about planting into cold soils, I have seven key things I'm usually discussing, especially when related to corn. Uh, First of all, you can absolutely have great success when you're planting into cold soils. Usually, we're getting more yield planting corn early, beans early, wheat early, just about any crop early. But, I, I'd encourage you to take a look at what the crop insurance date is in your area. We really don't advise you to plant before that first crop insurance date. If you're going to, talk to your crop insurance agent so you know what you're going to lose if something bad happens. Two, the soil has to be fit. We don't want you mudding that crop in, especially when it's day one. Now, if you're right at the end of the planting season, you know, sometimes you got to make some hard choices on the farm. I know we have. And we have, I will just call it, mudded the crop in occasionally at the end of the season. But at the beginning of the season, I would not advise you to do that. Cold germination score. I don't care what crop we're talking about. Look at the cold germination test, and nobody's going to have that on their seed tag. So that's where you've either got to talk to the seed company and make sure they have the data, or you got to test the seed yourself. And unfortunately, there are a lot of companies who, they may say they have certain cold germ score and then you find out yeah that's not really true. So in most cases I'm going to tell you get the seed early and test it for the cold germ score. Next thing is great seed treatment. That means multiple fungicides have an insecticide and then look at what you can do for biologicals or as we call them naturals. So for example like on our farm like on soybeans we're putting on 75 things now in the soybean seed believe it or not. So it's everything from amino acids to some night some nutrient solubilizers, we got some fungal endophytes. I mean, we're putting all kinds of stuff on there. So I, I don't remember off the top of my head what the number is, but I'm going to say like 68 or so of those 75 things are biological. So there are things you can do. We have found that with the right combination of biologicals, we're able to pop seed out of the ground 10 to 20% faster. That's a really, really, really big deal in the cold soils we usually deal with. Then it's what you're going to do in furrow. We look at fertilizer, we look at insecticide and fungicide. So with fertilizer, we just tell you, use a low rate with water and use a low-salt product. You put the water in there to help safen it or basically spread it out more. Just like if you were to do some fungicide, you could use Zyway now through that that Thrive 3D system that FMC developed. Basically, it turns the product into a foam. So think about hand soap. Remember the old hand soap where it's just this little like gel and it's kind of hard to spread? And then it went to foam, where they could actually use a lot less and you had a lot better coverage. That's basically what we're talking about here. We want better coverage. So what happens commonly right now is you're putting on such a low rate, it's little dribbles that end up, and sometimes they end up on the seed, sometimes they don't. When they end up on the seed, that's hard on the seed because now you get a more concentrated droplet. So if you can dilute that droplet a little bit, you're in better shape. So something for you to think about with fertilizer and with a fungicide piece. So there were a few people last year that talked about delayed emergence with Zyway. But any time you kept that Zyway off the seed, even just a tiny little bit off the seed, or if you turned it into a foam, there was no problem with the, the delayed emergence. So something for you to think about there. And then finally, insecticide. We'd encourage you to use an insecticide. Now, if we're just talking about, hey, it's cold soil, then something like capture LFR is just fine. If we're talking about you have a massive rootworm problem, that is another conversation. Capture LFR is fine, but it's not the best thing on the market. That's where you're going to need to spend more money and go to a dry and all that kind of thing. But anyway, use at least a little bit of insecticide just for general pests because you got to think about that seed is sitting in the ground longer. Rootworm is not going to affect the seed. Rootworm is going to affect the roots because rootworms aren't even going to come out until like in our area, a month, month and a half after we've planted. So that seed is well out of the ground before the rootworms even hatch. So I'm not worried about rootworm when we're talking about getting seed out of the ground. Okay. So anyway, just a little different conversation than than that rootworm one. So hopefully our discussion has helped you today. Again, if you've got any questions about this or anything else agronomically that's happening on your farm, you can certainly email us, radio at agphd.com. Janelle, why don't you hit that mailbag music since we didn't get the chance to do it earlier in the show. It's the mailbag! All right, our next question here comes from Nick, and actually it's a comment more than a question. We were talking about with corn and just crops in general, letting them stand until spring recently an Ag PhD. And he said, yeah, you can do that with corn and let it stand till spring. But it's awfully risky when you do soybeans. First frost and then a little wind or snow will knock them down. Corn uh, could get brittle enough and fall over with snow or wind, but that doesn't happen as often. Yes, we would agree with you 100%, Nick, that you don't want to be putting that s- soybean crop at that much risk and letting it sit there when it's going to snow. So yeah, having a soybean crop stand till spring, if you do, you're just lucky if you still get a pretty full yield. Uh, Gary also had a comment on, why crops stand until spring. And he just said, well, I just think it's poor crop management and that's all there is to it. So you got to get that crop out in the fall. Now, Gary, sometimes Mother Nature is just that much against you. But this is one of the things, too, if you just work your way back. So I'll just tell you one of the most important lessons my dad basically ever gave me is you got to think about the end at the beginning. Because if you don't do the beginning right, then the end's never going to turn out right. And we also on our farm penciled out, okay, how, in terms of the drying capacity and how about our combines and our trucks and the grain carts and everything else, where's the weak link here? Why can't we get all our crop out? Because for him, his goal was always October 31. The crop 100% had to be out by Halloween, no matter what. So that was always the deal. And so, like I say, we just had to work that back. Like, okay, how many days of rain do we normally get in the fall? How how long does it take to do this job? How far away are the fields? Everything else. And it's up to each individual farmer, whatever, it's whatever you choose. If you want to have some crop standing until spring, sometimes that's your call. So don't don't think that we're saying, oh, everybody has to have it done at a certain time. You can do whatever you choose to do. I'm just saying this is how we operate it on our farm. But if you do let stuff stand until spring, the biggest factor that I always look at is how how sturdy is that stalk? So if it's corn that's standing till spring, I'd like to see that corn planted a little bit thinner, definitely have very high potassium level in the soil. And if you can get that thicker stalk, then generally speaking, you don't have as much problem with it falling over. Now, there's also the issue, of course, with animals and everything, eating the crop with the, the ears falling out of the ground. So there are a lot of different things to consider. All right, next one here. Uh, I don't have a name on this, but uh, just a comment. We were talking about township roads and ditches. Actually, I got a couple of these in. One's from David, and I don't have a name in the other one. Anyway, David says, I live in central Ohio. Well, we have about a mile and a half of road frontage on township and county roads. Now, years ago, the county auditor's office told me that we got a tax deduction because the roads were on our land and the public is using our land. I don't know if this deduction is still applied. David, I agree. Sometimes we don't ask, ask enough questions and sometimes our politicians just say, yeah, why are we doing this discount over here? Yeah, let's cut that. And then they don't inform some of us who are actually paying the tax. So I would ask that question. That's a good one. Uh, with this other comment that I got here, and again, I don't have a name on this. They just said, in our area, we're not allowed to clean out the ditches. The townships frown upon that, and we'll fine you. So it's amazing how they tell farmers it's your responsibility, yet we're not allowed to maintain it. So it definitely varies from state to state and county to county, and I agree with that 100%. And one of the things, just as a farmer And as somebody who's driving on the roads and has three kids who have their own vehicles and are driving on the roads, um, I don't like seeing, let's call them wildlife areas right next to the road. It's like we've got... Hundreds of millions of acres in the United States. Can't we get the wildlife a little ways away from the road? I just don't want them right next to the road because I don't know how many times it's happened where somebody I know hits a deer because they can't see the deer coming out of the road ditch because there's basically a wildlife preserve right next to the road. So anyway, that's just my feeling about that. But anyway, yeah, there are a lot of uh, lot of differences from township to township, county to county, and state to state. All right, well, we hope you've enjoyed our show today. Again, we talked a little about improving seed emergence. I can't stress that enough. You want to have good seed emergence no matter what. Try to get an even stand out there and really take a hard look at what you're doing for seed treatments and all those in-furrow treatments. Also, before we go, just want to say thanks to our production staff. They had to work overtime a little bit today. We had to call a few extra people in to uh, fix some of the uh, the issues we had in studio, but got those taken care of. Appreciate that. And thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.